read our verses. Well, some of our verses for today. We're coming from Hebrews 1, and we're going to talk about the deity of Christ and also the responsibility that we have um, to walk in obedience and, and to worship and honor and obey him. So, um, so I will start Hebrews 1. Okay, that's not going to work. God, having spoken to the fathers long ago in the voices and writings of the prophets in many separate revelations, each of which set forth a portion of the truth and in many ways has in these last days spoken with finality to us in the person of one who is by his character and nature his son, namely Jesus, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, through whom also he created the universe, that is, the universe as a space-time matter continuum. The sun is the radiance and only expression of the glory of our awesome God, reflecting God's Shekinah glory the light being, the brilliant light of the divine, and the exact representation and perfect imprint of his Father's essence, and upholding and maintaining and propelling all things, the entire physical and spiritual universe by his power. Powerful word. Carrying the universe along to its predetermined goal, when he himself and no other had by offering himself on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, accomplished purification from sins and established our freedom from guilt. He sat down, revealing his completed work at the right hand of the majesty on high, revealing his divine authority, having become as much superior to angels since he has inherited a more excellent and glorious name than they, that is, Son, the name above all names. And Father, we do thank you for this portion of your word, just revealing and reminding us of who your son is, uh, Lord, the creator of the universe and um, the redeemer of our souls. And we thank you, Father, for just, again, your love for us and, and this time on tonight. And we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. You all may be seated. Um, I mean, obviously, we know that, you know, Jesus, the second person in the Godhead and, um, and his significance and importance in the salvation story, you know, again, just coming out of Easter and, and the sacrifice that he made for us. But it's always great to, to go back through and, and be reminded of this. So I'm going to continue starting at verse 5 and finish uh, through verse 14. I didn't want to have you stand for that whole time. So verse 5 says, For to which of the angels did the Father ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten, fathered you, established you as son with kingly dignity. And again, did he ever say to the angels, I shall be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn, highest ranking son into the world, he says, and all the angels of God are to worship him. And concerning the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministering servants flames of fire to do his bidding. 
But about the son, the father says to him, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of absolute righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness, integrity, virtue, uprightness, and purpose, and have hated lawlessness, injustice, sin. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain forever and ever, and they will all wear out like a garment. And like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same forever, and your years will never end. But to which of the angels has the Father ever said, sit at my right hand, together with me in royal dignity, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet in triumphant conquest? Are not all the angels ministering spirits sent out by God to serve, accompany, protect, those who will inherit salvation? Of course they are. So going back to, to verse 1, um, you know, we see in the Old Testament the, the various prophets who would reveal um, a portion of who Jesus was and is. Um, you know, different ones. You know, I think of Isaiah when he saw a vision of God and his response was one of just being overwhelmed and awed. Um, and he was silent. It, what's interesting is that when anyone has a true vision of God in Scripture, they're speechless. They're overwhelmed. And we even see that at times with Jesus, you know, when... Um, you know, after Peter had said, you know, I'll never deny you, and, um, and he ended up denying Jesus, and Jesus came back to him, we see that Peter was, Peter was just embarrassed and, and overwhelmed. Um, when Jesus told the disciples to go out fishing, and they had, they had already been fishing, they didn't catch anything, he, uh, Jesus told them to go back out, and Peter's like, ah, we've been out there, but because you said it, we'll do it. And they caught so much in the net that the net began to break. Peter comes back and says, Lord, get away from me. I'm not worthy of you. Um, so when we really see a picture of Jesus, and, and we see bits and pieces of that in the Old Testament, but when Jesus came to earth and he's walking, not only did Jesus speak truth, but he demonstrated truth to us. You know, oftentimes we see in Scripture, you know, we'll hear different passages, for instance, um, love your neighbor as yourself. And the question sometimes is, well, how, how do I do that? We look at Jesus. We see how he treated people. And you all have heard me say a few times since Easter, um, his treatment of Judas. Love your neighbor as yourself. How did Jesus love Judas? Knowing that Judas was going to betray him, he was still patient and kind, washed his feet and called him friend. You can't get much better than that. 
And it also gives us, it doesn't give us an excuse to say, well, well. He was loving and kind to him. Um, verse 3, the sun is the radiance and only expression of the glory of our awesome God, reflecting God's Shekinah glory, the light being the brilliant light of the divine and the exact representation and perfect imprint of his father's essence and upholding and maintaining and propelling all things, the entire physical and spiritual universe. You know, Jesus told, um, I believe it was Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What does God look like? Look at Jesus. Um, and we see, again, we see the love of Jesus. The woman caught in the act of adultery. Um, the law said that she should have been stoned. Jesus didn't do that but provided an opportunity for her to repent and be restored. He was kind and patient with her. Um, many people, and sometimes we can have a misconception of who God is. We're, we can live in fear of God. Oh, God's going to get me. God is loving. God is kind. Now, obviously, there is a wrath side of God, but when we come to him, uh, when we repent, when we're open, he is loving and accepting of us. That's what we see with Jesus. Um, patient, kind. And you notice, Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for, for the religious leaders yeah, who were hypocritical. But, and they, they made fun of him because he spent time with prostitutes and sinners. Um, he was eating with them and talking with them and fellowshipping with them. Something else I notice about Jesus, I've said this before, Jesus listened to people. He would take time with them and listen. He knew everything that was on their minds, but he would still sit and talk and listen to them. He would affirm them. And that's what he challenges us to do as well. Okay. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels, since he has inherited a more excellent and glorious name than they, that is, son the name above all names. For to which of the angels did the Father ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten, fathered you, established you as a son with kingly dignity. And again, did he ever say to the angels, I shall be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn, highest ranking son into the world, he says, and all the angels of God are to worship him. And concerning the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministering servants flames of fire to do his bidding. Now listen to this eighth verse, how powerful this is. 
But about the son, the father says to him, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of absolute righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. The father calls the son God. You know, there are a number of passages that I've, I probably started reading the Bible when I was about six and kind of understanding it. For years, I blew past this. But a few months ago, I looked at it and I said, wait a minute. The father calls the son God. That's heavy. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of absolute righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness, integrity, virtue, uprightness, and purpose, and have hated lawlessness, injustice, sin, with the oil of gladness above your companions, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work, works of your hands. Um, since we live in Southern California with a lot of light pollution, we often don't get a chance to see the stars and the planets. Um, when we had our men's retreat in, I think it was October, September, September, October, whatever it was, we were up um, in Hesperia, and at night, it was majestic. I try, I have, a, I have an app on my phone, um, a planetary app. And every now and then I'll stop and just take a look at the heavens. If you don't get a chance to do that, I encourage you to stop sometimes at night. If you need the app, get it and just look up at the stars and think, Jesus made that. Jesus put everything in order. And, and what really blows me away is when, and we've heard this, we, we've heard scientists say, that star is 200 light years away. A light year being the distance light travels in a year at 186,000 miles per second. See, that, that makes my head hurt when I think about it. But Jesus created that. And apparently, according to scientists, our galaxy is one of millions of galaxies. Jesus created that. I don't understand it. I can't fathom it. But that speaks of the majesty and the power and the sovereignty of our God. Uh, let's see, verse 11, they will perish, but you remain forever and ever, and they will all wear out like a garment, and like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same forever, and your years will never end. That's another concept I don't understand. I don't understand eternity, because everything I know of has a beginning and an end. Eternity doesn't have a beginning and it doesn't have an end, I don't get that. Like, how does that work? But not for me to understand. Uh, 
but to which of the angels has the Father ever said, sit at my right hand together with me in royal dignity until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet in triumphant conquest? Are not all the angels ministering spirits sent out by God to serve, accompany, protect those who will inherit salvation? Of course they are. So we get um, a glimpse of who Jesus is through Hebrews 1. Now let's go over to Hebrews 12 to see how we are to respond to our God. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness. Um, again, as we look through the Old Testament, we see countless stories of those who trusted God. And the interesting thing about trust, and we all can attest to this, trust typically, by definition, is not easy. Resting in God is not easy. And it's not supposed to be. It, it is supposed to challenge us. Um, I, I think of the story of Joseph. I'm sure you all have heard me talk about this. Um, Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers, um, taken to Egypt, was a servant, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown in jail for a few years. Um, but from the time that he was thrown into the pit and the, the dream dreams that Joseph, God had given him, said that um, his brothers and father were gonna bow down to him. From the time he was thrown into the pit until the time that his brothers bowed down before him was 22 years. And I always like to ask this question, what were you doing 22 years ago? I'll give you a second to think about that. That would have been 2001. We had just come out of Y2K, and we all remember the craziness of, yeah, 2001 was 9-11. Wow. 9-11 was 22 years ago. 22 years ago. And I'm sure we all remember that day. I, rem I was in the kitchen making breakfast. I was about to go to work. Turned on Channel 5 News. This was after the second plane had hit. And I said to myself, well, that's interesting. I guess someone, you know, made a mistake and flew into the building. And I saw the other plane come around, and I said, no, that's not a mistake. That's terrorism. And that was 22 years ago. I remember riding to, driving to work that day, and everyone was in shock getting to work. Everyone was in shock. But interesting how that pulled us together as a nation. People are letting people in on the freeway. <laughs> <laughs> 
can I get you something? Can I get some, you know? <laughs> Everyone's nice and kind to everyone. And as usual, after tragedies, after a while, it, it wears off. And we go back to business as usual. All right, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness, stripping off every unnecessary weight and the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us. Let us run with endurance and active persistence the race that is set before us. Again, thinking of those in the Old Testament, you know, immediately I'm thinking of Abraham, promised a son. And he and Sarah were already old. And when he was promised the son, initially Abraham fell on the ground laughing, saying there is no way this is going to happen. Um, but it did happen, and Abraham's faith was strengthened. And isn't that often the pattern for us? Um, we see something in, in the scriptures, and you know, our, sometimes our initial response is, eh, here, here's one. Forgiveness. Someone who has hurt us, and God tells us to forgive, and I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. But when we do, and it, it may not happen immediately, but when we do, we experience the peace that God has promised when we do that. It's not necessarily easy, but when we do, God grants us that peace. And, um, and on and on, the different accounts that we see in Scripture of different ones who, we see those who had a hard time trusting, and some never did, and those who had a hard time and they finally said, you know, God, I surrender. Uh, one of our songs that we had tonight, I surrender. God, I surrender. I want to do things your way. Uh, verse 2, again, looking away from all that will distract us. There are so many things in our lives that can distract us if we allow it. Uh, so many things in society. Um, I've shared this before. I learned a number of years ago that sports can distract me, especially around playoff time. Uh, and this, this was like, when the Lakers and um, Pacers were playing in the finals, this was probably 2000. And the Lakers lost a game in Indiana, and I was stressed out. And I stopped, I said, wait a minute. I don't know these people. Nobody's giving me any money. <laughs> Why am I stressed out because the Lakers lost a game? And they ended up winning the series anyway. But I, from that, I said, wait a minute. Nothing wrong with sports. You know, I 
But I realized from that point on that I, I can't watch games, especially during playoff time, of, of the teams that I'm interested in. I just can't watch it because I'll get, I'll get all worked up. So I have my app on my phone, and I'll check in on it periodically. And then sometimes I don't even do that. I just say, you know what, just forget it all together because it becomes a distraction for me where I'm more concerned about, are they going to win? <laughs> that has no bearing on my life. It, it's not important. It's a distraction for me. Other people can watch it, and they're fine. But, I mean, we've seen people get in fights over games. We've seen people killed over games. Doesn't make sense. Okay. Again, looking away from all that will distract us and focusing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith, the first incentive for our belief, and the one who brings our faith to maturity. I'm pausing on purpose. The one who brings our faith to maturity. We are always being challenged to grow. Uh, right now, I am working with 12 and 14-year-olds. I am 19 days away from retirement. But I'm working with 12 and 14-year-olds. Just about everyone here is a parent, so I don't have to tell you what I'm dealing with. <laughs> with 12 and 14-year-olds, and a group of 12 and 14-year-olds who influence each other in silliness and immaturity and games. And kids have gotten into this thing lately where when they leave the room, they turn the light off. And he, 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 uh. <laughs> Our 14-year-old boys love to, if one of their friends has something on their desk, they'll wait till that other person's not looking and they'll take it and hide it. And then when the person's looking for it, they're like, well, let me help you, let's, let me help you and see if we can find it, knowing that they've taken it. And I, I, I'm doing this often during the day. <laughs> and then I think, was I this way when I was 14? Now, we always revise history as we get older. I don't remember being like this. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, oh, here we go. Looking away from all that will distract us and focusing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith, the first incentive for our belief, and the one who brings our faith to maturity. Um, how many of us are maturing in our faith right now? Can I see a show of hands? Yeah, and we all should be, you know. We're challenged in different ways. And you all, you all heard me say this a lot. One of the challenges for us is patience. And in one of the passages that I can't think of right now, but 
It defines patience as not the ability to wait, but how I act while I'm waiting. That's key. I always like to use the example. There are a couple of ways that we can wait for the bus. No, let me, let me use this other example. There are a couple of ways that we can cross the street. We can wait for the light to turn green for us to cross. You can press the button once and wait. It only takes once, right? Right, right? You all know where I'm going. Or I can do this. It's not going to make it change any faster. If I press it 20 times, I just have to press it, especially the electronic ones where, you know, it goes beep. <laughs> I just have to press it once and wait. And we can be that way in our lives, you know, with whatever's happening. It's, yeah, hurry up. <sighs> 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 Patience, as defined in that passage, is not the ability to wait, but how I act while I'm waiting. And I am learning in different situations that, you know what? It's not a big deal. Just, just relax. I was running late this morning. Oh, running late this morning. And, you know, I take my little water uh, bottle with me. Well, I'd fill my water bottle up, but I didn't screw the top on completely. So when I grabbed the top, it knocked over the bottle. And I'm already kind of late. And water went on the table, on papers, and on the floor. And you know, I'm like, ah. Oh. But I said, you know what? It happens. Things like that happen. I'll just clean it up. And I said to myself, I'll be at work on time. I'll be fine. It's no big deal. And sure enough, I was at work on time. It's no big deal. That's something I have to challenge myself on. Is that there, there are many things that we don't have to get worked up about. It's, it's just not a big deal. Now, there are some things that are important. But there are many things that aren't. Okay. Uh, ah. Again, the first incentive for our belief and the one who brings our faith to maturity, who for the joy of accomplishing the goal set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, revealing his deity, his authority, and the completion of his work. Jesus gave us a wonderful example of patiently dealing with trials in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what was waiting for him. Not only the physical pain, but the emotional pain of being separated from his father, bearing the sins of mankind. And I love the example he set for us. He said, Father, if there's another way, we can do it, but not my will, but your will be done. That's a great example for us. It's acknowledging that a situation is going to be tough, 
because denying it doesn't help, and it's not authentic. There are things we face, it's going to be tough. Family issues or whatever, you know, hey, this, this hurts. And, and that's something I'm learning to do in my prayer, is to say, God, and I'm learning how liberating this is, to say, God, the situation hurts. I'm either sad, I'm disappointed. God, it hurts. But knowing that, Father, you have a purpose for this. All of us have to experience trials to grow. We can't get through this life without trials, without pain. If we do, one, we're not children of God. And then, two, we're not going to grow. I mean, I, I appreciate how Pastor Randy is sharing his journey. He, every time he stands here, he shares his journey with Jeanette. He's saying, this is hard. This is tough. I was talking with him a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, I, I try to check in with him. And... He, had, he has a picture of Jeanette on his iPad. I was like, hey, that's, that's a cool picture. They were, in, they were in Venice, I think. No, they were someplace else. But anyway, beautiful picture of them together. And I, I told him, I said, hey, I've told him many times, I said, what he's going through is much tougher than what I experienced because I had closure. Well, he doesn't have closure right now. And I said to him, I said, Pastor Andy, I, I miss my wife. And he said, I miss mine too. And again, I appreciate his authenticity of sharing that with us. And he also says, but he knows that God is sovereign. That God doesn't make mistakes. That there is a purpose, there is an eternal purpose that God has for this. That he doesn't know right now. And the fact that he's not here because he's at home caring for her during this time. That's, that's the way to do it. All right. So Jesus, again, for the joy of accomplishing the goal. Jesus's joy was us. His joy was reconciling us to the Father. Looking at that pain, oh, wait, wait, wait. Looking at that torture. See, we, we kind of get a sanitized view, certainly. It, it's it's kind of brushed over in Scripture somewhat. But Passion of the Christ was an excellent depiction of that. First time I had ever seen that depicted that way, I was sitting in the theater crying. Like, oh, wow. And, and at various points, I, had, I, I couldn't look at it. So that's a good reminder for us to know what Jesus suffered for us. And the scripture says here, for the joy 
who for the joy of accomplishing the goal set before him endured the cross, disregarded the shame. Crucifixion was the worst form of death. It was shameful. And he endured that for us. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, at, of the throne of God, revealing his deity, his authority, and the completion of his work. Just consider and meditate on him who endured from sinners such bitter hostility against him. Consider it all in comparison with your trials so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And I, at times I try to do that. What, if, when I'm experiencing a situation that's especially tough, I think of being tortured as the Lord was. And I'm like, well, you know what? My thing's not that bad. <laughs> it's really not that bad. Verse 4, you have not yet struggled to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. I've, I've never been beaten. I've never been scourged. I've never had anyone spit on me and punch me, blindfold me, hit me, and say, hey, tell, tell me who hit you. And the thing that gets me, I've said this before, it's one thing when you're being beaten and you can't do anything about it. It's a whole nother thing when you can, you can stop it in an instant. And not only will I tell you who did it, <laughs> but I'm going to shut you down right now. <laughs> but he didn't do that. He, en he endured that pain for us. Okay. Verse 4, again, you have not yet struggled to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the divine word of encouragement, which is addressed to you as son, sons. My son, do not make light of the discipline of the Lord, and do not lose heart and give up when you are corrected by him. For the Lord disciplines and corrects those whom he loves, and he punishes every son whom he receives and welcomes to his heart. Now, this is a question, uh, this is a, a promise in Scripture we don't claim, we don't readily claim. <laughs> the Lord disciplines and corrects those whom he loves. Verse 7, you must submit to correction for the purpose of discipline. God is dealing with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, if you are exempt from correction and without discipline, in which all of God's children share, then you are illegitimate children and not sons at all. Moreover, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we submitted and respected them for training us. Shall we not much more willingly submit to the Father of spirits and live by learning from his discipline? You know, going back to my students, I, <laughs> I'm talking to them all the time, and I'm saying, hey, you know what, you need to correct that because, you know, as you get older, that's going to be a problem. And some of them are like, blah, 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 blah. 
They're like, no, I'll be fine. Like, no, you won't be fine. Even, even, <laughs> and they kind of make me laugh when they do this, but um, they, they imitate me when they get started. And I start, I said, guys, let me tell you. And they're like, no, no, we know. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and they go through the whole list of stuff I say to them. And I'm like, okay, well, you will see. No, I'll be fine. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I tell them, 18 days. <laughs> 18 days. <laughs> That's right, 18 days. <laughs> okay. Verse 7, you must submit to correction for the purpose of discipline. God is dealing with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father is not disciplined? Now, if you are exempt from correction without discipline, in which all God's children are, in which all of God's children share, then you are illegitimate children and not sons at all. Moreover, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we submitted and respected them for training us. Shall we not much more willingly submit to the Father of spirits and live by learning from his discipline? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for only a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. For the time being, no discipline brings joy, but seems sad and painful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, right standing with God, and a lifestyle and attitude that seeks conformity to God's will and purpose. Again, I don't know anyone who likes discipline, but when we learn and grow from it, it's a good thing. All right, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Inasmuch then as we believers have a great high priest who has already ascended and passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of faith and cling tenaciously to our absolute trust in him as Savior. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize and understand our weaknesses and temptations, but one who has been tempted knowing exactly how it feels to be human in every respect as we are, yet without committing sin, committing any sin. Therefore, let us with privilege approach the throne of grace, that is, the throne of God's gracious favor with confidence and without fear, so that we may receive mercy for our failures and find his amazing grace to help in time of need, an appropriate blessing coming just at the right moment. Jesus knows, as the song says, Jesus knows all about our struggles. And again, I am learning to, to bring these things to him in prayer. Um, I think sometimes one of the toughest things to do is to acknowledge our struggles to God, to say, hey, God, you know what? I, 
I blew it in this area. Um, God, I'm not thinking about this properly. God, I, I want to be obedient to you. I'm having a tough time. God, please help me. And this passage lets us know that we can approach God with privilege. He's eager to hear us and more than willing to forgive us. If he can be patient with Judas, who he knew was going to betray him, then certainly we can come before him and he will hear us. All right, Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. In the days of his earthly life, Jesus offered up both specific petitions and urgent supplications for that which he needed. So Jesus prayed to his father. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, and certainly there are other moments where Jesus had a need and he, he went to his father, and we have been given that privilege as well. And I am learning in prayer, <clears throat> the first thing that I should do is to worship him in prayer. Before I bring my list of concerns and requests, the first thing I should do in prayer is to worship him, to acknowledge his sovereignty, his power, that he put those stars and planets in place. And one thing that does is that it puts my situation in perspective. Because you know, you know how our problems are, like this huge. But when I acknowledge the, the sovereign God of the universe who put a star 200 light years away So the problem's not big for you. It's, it's big for me, but it's not huge for you. And you'll, you're listening to me, and, and you want me to come and bring this to you. See, here's the thing. Well, here's what I've done. For years, I've tried to handle my situations myself. I got it. I'll take care of it. God, I won't bother you with this one. I'll take care of it. And you know how that worked? Not so well. Not so well. Because one, I'd be worrying about it and, and then watching it crash and burn. And it's like, okay, God, let me give this to you. Then it, he, has, he takes it off my shoulders and it's like, ah, I don't have to handle it. Well, one, because I can't. God, let me give it to you. Okay. Um, again, in the days of his earthly life, Jesus offered up both specific petitions and urgent supplications for that which he needed with fervent crying and tears to the one who was always able to save him from death. And he was heard because of it 
because of his reverent submission toward God, his sinlessness and his unfailing determination to do the Father's will. Although he was a son who had never been disobedient to the Father, he learned active special obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, uniquely equipped, and prepared as Savior, and retaining his integrity amid opposition, he became the source of eternal salvation and eternal inheritance to all those who obey him, being designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, that theme of if Jesus learned active special obedience from what he suffered, what about us? I am not running headlong into suffering. <laughs> Bring it on, God, no. But I, am, I have learned, and I've shared this with you all before, um, it's approaching 10 years since my wife died. And that experience is both the most painful and outside of um, accepting Christ as Savior, it's been one of the best experiences of my life because it has changed my perspective. It has given me a sense of empathy for others. I mean, this uh, grief ministry, um, to be able, um, and Nancy and Evie can speak to that, being able to, to sit with a group of people and just share our grief, Maria as well, to share grief, it's a powerful experience. And it's an authentic experience. And the great thing about, and whenever I share with someone who has lost, no one has to explain anything to anybody. Because we all, we all get it. We get it. One thing that, uh, and different ones have shared this, because you know what happens. You tell someone, I lost my spouse. What, what's the response? I'm sorry for your loss. Which didn't do anything for me, personally. I, you know, I, I, people were saying to me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, a couple of people told me they hated cancer. Okay. What does that do for me? But to share with someone who has suffered loss, and often I get a, just a hand on the shoulder, and, okay, now I get it. In fact, it was, um, it was D. Webb. She no longer attends here. She moved to, uh, um, I forget where she moved, San Diego, San Diego. But when it was announced that my wife had died, <clears throat> I was leaving. And she caught me at the door. She said, um, she said, are you Willie? I said, yeah. She said, come here. And she said, my husband died six months ago. And it was like, You get it. And we stood out on that street and cried and talked together. 
and that was that was the beginning of my growth as a widower because then I had someone really she kind of guided me she she was the one who took me by the hand and said no I get it I get it and she told me her story about her husband and and I asked her permission to share the story hers was she and her husband had been married 49 years for 45 of those years he ignored her he went back and forth to work every day, provided and everything, but he did not pay any attention to her. Her prayer was, she said she just wanted him to touch her face. Well, he had a stroke. And it was during that time, those last four years, she said that he would touch her face. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> but such a tender story. And it was the trial that brought them closer together. It was me losing my wife that prompted me to listen to other people during their grief. Because I, I was kind of arrogant about, I was quietly arrogant about it. You know, if somebody would lose their I've shared this, some would lose their loved one. And I thought they were mourning too long. In my head, I'm like, come on now, wrap this up. You've been mourning too long. <laughs> God will heal you, come on, let's go. Now I never said that to anyone, but that's, that's what I was thinking. It's like, no, it's been six months, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And then I lost Mignon. And I said, oh. This is how it feels. Oh, this is the pain and depression. Shortly after sleeping in the bed that Mignon and I would sleep in, in that empty spot there, there was some rough evening. Then I understood, made a lot more sense. It was that trial that caused me to grow, that cut out that arrogance. And I realized, man, you, you don't know what you're talking about. So Jesus, our savior, he's our loving savior. He's, He understands what we're experiencing, and he, he has invited us to come to him and to share our pain and our hurt. And it probably won't work out the way we want it to, but God's way. I mean, that's what Pastor Randy's experiencing. This is not working out the way he wants it to. But as we acknowledge God's sovereignty and his love toward us and he will, his will will be done in our lives. And Father, we worship you on this evening. Lord, we know that you do all things well, and, and often we don't understand what you're doing. But we realize later on that, uh, Lord, you are loving and you are kind, and 
your long-suffering. Lord, you know what's best for us. We thank you for our wonderful Savior who was tortured for us to provide us access to you. And uh, Father, we praise you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.